Hello, I'm Dr. David Perlmutter, and welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. You know, the truth of the matter is we spend an awful lot of time sitting on our rear ends, and as it turns out, there are significant health consequences associated with this sedentary activity. Uh, this is a terrific new book. It's called Desk Bound, and uh, it's standing up to a sitting world. Really uh, brings this information to our attention, written by Dr. Kelly Starrett. He is a coach, he's a physical therapist, he's also a New York Times best-selling author, uh, author of uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard and uh, his more recent uh, publication, Ready to Run, both uh, New York Times bestsellers and also Wall Street Journal bestselling lists as well. This is his latest uh, book, it's called Deskbound and it was just uh, released a couple of months ago. In 2015, he launched StandUpKids.org, a nonprofit organization that was founded by his wife, uh, Juliet. And the organization's mission is to get what are called stand-up desks into public schools around the country to help combat the epidemic of sedentary lifestyles and inactivity in children. So we're going to explore the detrimental effects of remaining in a seated position throughout the course of our day, uh, how impactful uh, this information is and in terms of its relevance to so many of our modern maladies and I'm really looking forward to this interview so here we go. So with that introduction let me say hello to Dr. Starrett. How are you doing today? I'm well thank you so much. Great well we're talking about your new book and here it is uh, as I talked about in the introduction terrific book. Um, a lot of people are going to need this message and are getting this message because as I mentioned, a lot of people are spending way too much time sitting on their rear ends. I almost feel bad uh, having this discussion with you while I'm sitting down after reading your book. But that said, you know, in the intro of your book, uh, you quote uh, Dr. James Levine from the Mayo Clinic, who says that sitting is the new smoking. What about that? I think the issue around you know looking at sitting, sitting is the poster child for a bigger problem, and that's really a sedentary lifestyle. And that you know if if, if we look at how the how Harvard is defining sedentary lifestyle, how the CDC, the WHO, all of these bodies around public health are looking at sedentariness, they really define it as sitting more than six hours a day. And then we can be a little bit more granular. Do you drop below below one and a half metabolic equivalents of activity? That turns out when you sit down, basically your body shuts down, physiology downregulates. And so I think what what Dr. James Levine is pointing out is that hey, when we sit, we're exposing a whole bunch of downregulatory physiology on the human, and and that really has a, a, a kind of a ultimately a, an aggregating cascade of of dysfunction that it expresses itself given enough time, and it always does. Well, you know, one of the things that's, that we often talk about is the role of our lifestyle choices, including food, but also activity as an epigenetic modulator. In other words, changing the expression of our DNA. And for those of us in neuroscience, we're really interested in aerobic activity and being active in terms of increasing the body's production of what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor to grow new brain cells. But to get back to, uh, to the introduction, uh, in fact, a quote from him uh, was that one hour of sitting uh, ends up leading to two hours of lost lifetime. How, that's pretty profound. It is profound. And, you know, the, the, always the risk here is saying, you know, this is about fear mongering. You know, don't sit. The, and, and really what ends up happening is that we end up 
you know, sort of discarding the entire thing because if we're really take a more of a cogent model or cogent view of this, we're going to see that you probably commute in the car, you sit at a desk at your board meeting, and pretty soon, you know, just the, the day-to-day, I went out to a nice dinner with my wife and I sat for an hour, and it really, I don't think we're looking at how sort of insidious this environmental load is. And it's it's almost like we forgot to think to ourselves, hey, we can make the you know, the environment fit the physiology. We don't have to take the physiology and make it fit the environment. And really, I think, you know, those those points where we you know, say, hey, it's like sitting, is smoking, and you're losing life expectancy. I think what we're trying to do is, is bring consciousness to this change and to the fact that a lot of the choices that we make around our physiology, we take for granted. And that, you know, what we're seeing is that Human beings were designed to be in constant motion. You know, we, you guys, um, look look a lot at the brain and brain function and the the, re- the relationship between activity and brain function. Well, we can really extrapolate that and and take it in any direction. You know, one of the things that where we do in our movements and mobility practice when we work with the world's best athletes is we prioritize nervous system first and that we see that the organization of the nervous system you know the the literally the geometry and the mechanics of the spine really end up you know being compromised when we're sitting and that's how we ended up ultimately for us coming to this conversation and what i really think is interesting is that we we fail to think about the fact that you know looking at skill acquisition as a biological process in the brain that more the neurons that fire together wire together and practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent and so we really start to ask well what are the shapes that we're adopting as a matter of habitus all day long and what are the implications on my breathing on my the patency of my airways and my head forward neck position on my jaw and really you can just check the boxes of very interesting things that happen when we you know, adopt these positions of, of less than optimal function. I feel like I better sit up straight or I'm going to be criticized here. So uh, there is a tendency, I think, in our modern world to uh, think that, well, I sat all day long, but if I go to the gym after work for an hour, I can offset that. And I think you make it pretty clear that that just isn't reality. Well, you know, it's it's the equivalent, I think, of smoking and and jogging. You know, those sort of things, they're anathema. And the problem is that we have seen, and the research is that um, gym memberships have tracked our global, our, our rise in obesity rates in the United States. So we think that people are doing the right thing. But as you know, looking at non-exercise activity, background activity, as really the the bigger pal- the bigger meal and that what we're looking at is exercise is almost like a condiment and exercise you know already is is a loaded term when we say hey you should be physically active well i mean there is a great diversity of of physical practices there but if you actually drill down for my wife and i about what we think is most important is hey do you have a physical practice but that physical practice has to include more non-exercise activity like walking you know, that's, that's not going to be as cardioprotective as breathing harder or, or certainly as bone protective or, or you know, immune, immune effective by gaining some muscle. But the background is, hey, you have to keep all these physiologic processes running. And the, the bottom line is that when we sit, they literally shut off. And when we look at diabetes rates in America, a, a, a new research out in the last month that says basically diabetes rates in America up 400%. 
For the first time, we've gone over the tipping point. There are more obese Americans and non-obese Americans. I mean, just sort of check the boxes that matter to you as a person. And then we look around and say, well, hey, I really feel like people are trying to do the right thing. They really are. We've seen a consciousness around some eating habits shift. It's going to take more time there. Right? We've seen people exercise. The, the popular culture has certainly popularized high-intensity exercise. But underneath that, we're still making this type one error, this foundational error, which is we are not doing what we were designed to do, which is to be in constant motion. And that's not radical change. It's a small change. So there's a big paleo movement. And the paleo movement really, as you know, uh, is mostly centered on trying to emulate our paleolithic ancestors' diets. Uh, and the reason that's important is because our genome has evolved uh, in close uh, responsiveness to the diet that, to which it has been exposed over tens of thousands of years. But I think uh, I'm really hearing now from you that uh, our level of physical activity is also an epigenetic kind of arrangement, that our level of physical activity uh, communicates quite well with our genome, and now suddenly uh, in the past 100 years or 200 years, we're not sending those signals back to our genome anymore, and that may explain uh, increasing rates of obesity and diabetes, et cetera. And I think, you know, as we know, if we take um, the work done by Charles Perrow, who was a sociologist out of Yale, who looks at, um, his great book is called Normal Accidents, and he looks at complex systems and the, and the, all of the difficult processes that are bundled in that. And it's really difficult to string out a single you know, aspect and say, hey, look, there's correlation between this and this in the short term. And the problem is that these systems are so complex that we add complexity on top of it. We're going to track, you know, we're going to track how many steps you take and we're going to get all these blood panels. And, and really, really, you know, I'm going to take this turmeric at 2 a.m. And, and what we end up happening is that we don't see the simplicity, the overlying principles on top of that. I think it's naive of us to say that technology is going anywhere. You know, we're not going to we're not going to see a regression in screen usage. The Kaiser Family Foundation did a research in the last five, three or four years that said that kids between eight and eighteen, independent of economic socio cohort, literally are spending seven and a half hours a day on in front of a screen. And so, what we have to do is then, you know, look at how do we have better blocked behavior. How do we take the choice away? If te technology is not going anywhere, then it's a lot easier for us to just make an environment that automatically protects us. And that, for example, is what we've done at our daughter's school. Our daughters are both at the first all-standing school in the world. And what we've done is taken away the, the opportunity to sit in a chair. Kids can sit on the floor anytime they want, which is you know that great piece of research that said, hey, can you get up off the ground without using your hands as a predictor of mortality. So something we're taking kids through full ranges of motion, and then we've created an environment that's a more movement-rich environment. The kids are constant motion. They, uh, there's a fidget bar at the bottom of the desk. And as a matter of non-choice, kids can either sit on the ground or they can be in a position that actually reflects their own physiology. The desks are individually heighted to them. And all of a sudden now, this technology creep where we're becoming more sedentary because we're in front of the TV, because we're on the phone, because, you know, all of those things are, are non-starters. It's not really an issue. And I think that's the way we want people to start to view this. We can look at our, our in, environmental sitting load as optional versus non-optional. And our contention is if you just kick out the non-optional, you know, kick out the optional sitting, then already you're going to make a massive difference towards 
improving this epigenetics and genetics. I mean, you you know, we just have to run the experiment long enough and you will see massive changes. Well, you know, again, just to drive home the importance of the work that you're doing and this problem in general, uh, your book mentions that the World Health Organization uh, characterized a sedentary lifestyle as being the fourth leading cause of death in the world. And, you know, that's that's right up there with other things that we, you know, we, we always talk about. I mean, it's basically, again, this this mismatch between who we used to be and our environment. So it's an environment gene mismatch that we can correct basically by reading your book and doing the things that you talk about. So tell us what we can do. What are the steps that we could take today to, to make changes? Well, the, the first thing we'd like you to do is, you know, begin to see the world as the choices that you're making with your body every day. And it, a, the simple one, again, is look at the opportunities when you can sit or when you could stand or move. Can I take that meeting? Can I, can I walk instead? Can I, can I uh, you know, work at my, check my email in a different position? And already that, you know, differentiates and splits sort of the, the, the load into, hey, I have, you know, managed to just get rid of all of the junky food out of my diet simply by not having it in the house. That's one of the ways we look at this, right? The second thing is, you know, what we see is that there is a little bit of entropy around getting started, especially the workplace. I need a doctor to get a, to have a note that says that I can have a standing desk. Well, if we back out on that for a second, what wow. really I know, right, <laughs> is that, you know, you don't need a doctor's note to stand. That's that's like asking your, doc, your doctor, do I need to go to use the washroom? And what we know around you know, adherence is that the more steps between someone and an action, the less likely are they to take the action. My doctoral work was on barriers to adherence. And so one of the things that we want is to see, have people say, look, if you, if you have an option to stand up, all you need is an Amazon box and then a, a phone book, place to put your foot. And those things have cost you very little. And that's not a very gorgeous looking, you know, workstation setup, but it, it's a start. The other thing you're going to need to know is that you know we have habituated ourselves to these sitting postures and we see the adaptation in the tissue and in the motor control because those are patterns that I've adopted for 14 to 16 hours a day is what the average person is sitting. And then when I go to stand up and open the hip and require more thoracic extension and shoulders back, I'm going to be like a baby deer standing up for the first time. And what we recommend is that you put yourself on a little shaping gradient. Make a commitment to stand for 30 minutes this week. Next week, bump it up a little bit. Stand for 45 minutes a day during the week. And then, and then pretty soon you've aggregated. Because what we see, which is very common in the workplace and in the United States, it's all or nothing. I've been sitting at my workstation for 50 years and I'm going to stand up and, and people are cooked. You know, they're weak. You know, and what's interesting is it really does track what we've seen in kids that Kids now are running the mile a minute and 20 seconds slower than their parents, which is pretty amazing. We're seeing that all measures of trunk stability and trunk strength, core strength, there we're seeing degraded abilities in, in our kids now. And we have to ask, you know, what's going on? Well, we're using the chair as a surrogate for our spine and the musculature of our spine. And what we need to do is look at the shift from sitting to standing more, the same way we train a marathon. Hey, let's let's make small changes that are really manageable so that you're not confronted with your your limitations of strength, stamina, and uh, you know, just biomechanics. Well, I thought it was really interesting how you even uh, described how uh, college-level football players 
uh, spend an inordinate amount of time just sitting. These are these are guys that are really involved in some very very intense training and then uh, execution as well. But basically, they're spending much of their time sitting. And that's that's right. And what I think what's interesting is we came to that conversation because we were helping their coaching staff solve a sequela of problems around that looked like short hip stiff quads, low back pain. And and when we, we said, hey, look, it's not that they're not doing the right intervention. They had really excellent strength and conditioning staff, wonderful physio medical staff, but it turns out they couldn't overcome this resting problem. And what's interesting is that when we work in the highest levels of sport, so I work, I spend a, a fair amount of time in the NFL, I talk to those coaches and say, you know, why can't you solve these problems? And they're like, oh, it's the kids in college. So then you go to the college university, the universities, and I spend a lot of time there. I'm like, what's the problem? They're like, these kids in high school, they're so broken. So then you're in, all the way down into high school, and you're like, the coaches are like, yeah, my kids can't can't air squat. They they don't have fundamental movements. They look like they're in these little shrimps all the time. We're asking them to open up and be powerful, and then they really are, they kick the they kick the, the the can back down to middle school, and that's. In our experiences where we have seen fundamental divergence in primary motor patterns, it begins in the first grade. And it's that literally if you watch any kindergarten without warm-up, they sprint to the playground, they all run naturally, they run on the ball of their foot, right? They strike like human beings are supposed to run, they leverage their heel cords, right? And then halfway through the first grade, those kids start to heel strike. And, and what's interesting is that you know, we've introduced this noxious load that is so insidious, but so consistent that it, that fundamentally changes how kids are moving. And then we end up sort of on this parallel track of function. And when we start to pan back out and again, look at the bigger pictures, adult diaper industry is a $1.2 billion industry in the United States because we're sitting on our pelvic floor, that the endopelvic fascia doesn't even wind up until you're weight bearing through the pelvis. And so what we see is as you know, is that the body is so miraculous at solving mechanical problems so that we can go on. And we, we confuse that compensation, right? We can produce massive amounts of insulin to, to buffer the, the 16 donuts I just ate for a while. And then I can't buffer it anymore, right? And the same thing can be true for any, any aspect of your sort of your physiology around this. And to your point, and what we are seeing is, that you know, even in our healthiest populations, I'll put that in quotation marks because I'm not sure a 19-year-old male is the healthiest guy. But uh, what we're seeing is that it wasn't enough to overcome this this setting sitting load. And when we pan again, pan back out and look at any of the other aspects of the physiology and the function, we have to ask what is the underlying sort of let's say pathology. What is the underlying noxious stimulus? It turns out that it's the sedentary lifestyle, which also is allegory for wretched positioning. Well, you know, obviously that low back pain is a, an incredible source of morbidity, disability, and lost revenue here in America. And I think you made it very clear in your book uh, how related low back pain is to remaining sedentary. But you also offered up, as you did in Supple Leopard, um, some exercises to do. So what, you know, how do people get started? Let's say they have the book in hand. Where do we go? For an individual who does suffer from low back pain, what's the first step for him or her? The the we we can one of the ways that we evaluate good programming or good thinking is that it has to scale. Is that do the principles hold true? Are the systems mutually accommodating at any level of intervention? So, for example, you know when we're when we're looking at someone who has 
you know, non-specific low back pain or low back pain, what well, the first thing we do instead of trying to medicate, we want to deal with your pain. This is important, right? Chronic pain is a real problem. Just look at the opiate problem. But the real issue here is, you know, you're not, there's something around your moving. Unless you have pathology, you have spinal cancer, or you've been in a car accident, the chances are the underlying, you know, pathology is a movement related or failure to move, you know, pathology. And so, you know, it's, it's easy to say that disuse is catabolic, that tissues basically are tissues because they withstand load and they're systematically stressed. And that's how the system is, is, you know, even hydrates tissues, right? I have to be moving. I mean, if we sort of pan back out for people for a second, your lymphatic system is your primary, you know, part of your, uh, your of your immune system. It's how we clear congestion and swelling and move fluids out of the body, and that's driven through muscle contraction. So if I'm not mm. squeezing my muscles or using my muscles, then those lymphatics literally stagnate, and this is why you get cankles after an airplane. So again, the the coming back to that idea is the first thing we want to do is say, hey, let's let's make sure that we're not just band-aiding over a problem and let's start looking at the environmental loads. Let's get you standing more. And then let's also apply some technique to the body because I think this is the, the issue is that anytime someone comes into our practice and is having a movement-related dysfunction, the first question we ask is, how are you moving? Let's see how you move. Because that's the intercession change that's going to make the most difference. How someone carries themselves for 24 hours is far more important than any intervention I can load onto them in 45 minutes or an hour. And so we try to empower the person to move well first, and that's what the first half of the book is about. So you, though, mentioned, I don't think it's the first half of the book, it's later on, just now mentioned about how it is when you get off an airplane and how uh, stiff you can be. But you had some really great tips for those of us who end up traveling a lot. And I think one of the ones you mentioned was to make friends with your neighbors right off the bat. <laughs> uh, but traveling is a bear sometimes for us who Absolutely. are around, uh, lecturing and things like that. What can you, what kind of tips can you give us? Well, one of the things that we think of is, you know, we know that there are going to be periods of our life, a modern life, where you're going to be compromised. You're just going to be in a bad position. And this, you can be a, my, one of my police officers, you're wearing body armor and a utility belt riding a car. It means, hey, look, this is your job. So how are we going to do that? We can't, you know, at some point we still need police officers in cars. And so the idea here is, well, we can program sufficiently to some soft tissue work, some movement, some breathing. There's things that we can put in as a physical practice, as a position or skill transfer set of exercises that helps us to ameliorate the compensation or the effects. So, you know, one of the things that people love to do, they get off the airplane and they go for a run. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you did know. that last night. <laughs> it happens. Exactly that, flying in from Portland to Florida. I might That's know. right. And so what we would say is, hey, instead of just going for a run, let's go for a walk first. And I'm not saying you can't run, but let's develop a 10-minute routine or a practice that helps us to address some of the stiffness or disuse or, or static positions that we've been in. And because this is an intervention we're recommending to people that's 10 minutes a day, it's the equivalent of brushing your teeth a couple times a day, we want you to spend 10 minutes a day working on the health of your soft tissues working on simple myofascial dysfunction, right? That when we give people the right solutions and antidotes and we have this small dose action, you know, over, over weeks and months, it makes a massive amount of change. And what we've really tried to do is strip down the jargon and give people really simple interventions 
that re-empower them to be able to address stiffness or myofascial pain. And one of the things that's shocking, I think, as a clinician, as you can relate, is that someone comes to you and they're literally on fire. And you're like, well, what do you know about you being on fire? And, you know, you have low back pain. Well, I don't know. I just woke up and I was like that. Like, okay, so we don't have much consciousness around it. And I'm like, well, what are you doing to make yourself feel better? And they're like, I came and saw you. And I think we have completely removed yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Right? We've removed ourselves from, from, from responsibility, not because we're lazy, but because it's not been part of our human experience. That our moms don't I do it, our dads don't do it. Thing. Yeah, I think it's cultural. Western cultures, we are kind of given to the notion that we can do whatever we want, live our lives come what may, and then hope that there'll be an Alzheimer's pill or there'll be something to, to lower the blood pressure or treat the diabetes. And, you know, you're right. It's, it's all about self-empowerment through, through education. And, you know, I, I really want to emphasize again to our viewers that uh, this is a very, very user-friendly approach, that this book is, you know, is going to walk you through uh, what you want to do. It's, it's very, very straightforward. I've spent actually quite a bit of time looking at it. Um, you know, one of the things I see a lot of, in addition to low back pain, is knee pain. And, um, you know, people end up going to the orthopedist and having their knees injected with steroids. And it seems to me uh, that we now recognize that a lot of knee pain comes from weakness of the quad muscles. And no doubt sitting in a chair all day uh, or in the car is going to cause weakness of your legs in general. But I think the quads specifically bear a huge uh, uh, detriment when, when they're not being exercised. And I think they play a huge role in keeping the knee stable, especially the kneecap. So what do you tell people about strengthening their quad muscles that might help alleviate their knee pain? Well, first and foremost, what's nice to think about is we're always taking a two-prong approach. One is how is the efficiency of the mechanical system? And that means if your quadriceps are stiff, if the connective tissue, the fascia in the upper leg is stiff and not sliding and, and, and has sort of is fibrotic from just poor use, right, then it's easy to immediately, for lack of a better word, feed some slack to the system. So if you're – I mean – the, the physicians around the turn of the century coined a term called theater sign, right, which is a, describes this patella pain, pain in the kneecap when you sit. And what's happening is when you sit, your rectus femoris, the, one of the hedge of your quadriceps, which it goes from your kneecap basically up to your pelvis, is under tension and it just pulls your kneecap into your femur, into your leg bone statically. And, and that's enough to over time, given enough duty cycles to sort of create a little, little sensitization in that area. And one of the things that we see is that a lot of times when people have pain, clearly function is a big part of it. But one of the easiest things you can do is take the handbrakes out of the system, take some of the internal resistance and overtension out of the system, which means simple rolling, simple myofascial release. And when we point out to people how strange it is that their quads are strangely attached to their knee, they're shocked. You know, I mean, it's you know, we Ida Rolf, the the wonderful uh, you know you know biomechanist uh, biochemist had this great saying. She's like, where the rats get in is not where they chew, and. And I think when we give people a basic template of saying, hey, what are the tissues above and below the area of having pain? Let's take a crack at, at improving their health, improving their perfusion. And you might be surprised that you might resolve that. But the other component to the biomechanic 
resolution is also the motor control that we have to teach people to squat appropriately and we have to teach people that there's skill underneath the human being and any movement tradition from yoga to pilates you know you come out of the martial arts and you'll see that people have solved what the stable position of the shoulder is and how to move the problem is that those things are buried in our movement traditions and sometimes you know dissociated from our modern experience so should you have a movement practice? Absolutely. It doesn't, we remain agnostic what that is, but teaching that motor control around making stable hips, you know, getting people strong enough, the makes an immediate difference. I mean, we see people who are so detrained that we put them on an exercise bike and they get stronger, which is not really the way to strengthen quads. It's also important that we recognize that your brain isn't wired for a single muscle group. Your brain is wired for movement patterns. And what this means is that the, the positions and patterns that we employ day to day are really ultimately the expressions of the formalized movement that we see in the gym. Deadlifting is picking something up off the ground with a hip hinge that protects my spine. Squatting appropriately in the gym is the same way that my daughters you know, get picked up by my wife. And then what we're looking at is when we train movements and not just, hey, let's get on the, the leg extension machine, then all of the systems that, that need to upregulate, upregulate. And it turns out, for example, you know, a couple of my coaches just came back from China where they were working with the junior national Olympic team in China. And there, the kids move meticulously. They move exactly like the, the, the way that we, we describe movement in the book here. It's exactly the same. They're, these kids aren't really that strong, but they their efficiency is so high that they don't have to be that strong at age 10 because their mechanics are rock solid. The wheels on their car are pointing straight. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that the end of every – before every lifting session, the kids run a mile. There's that cardiorespiratory demand. Then it's high skill, right, for years and years and years. At the end of every training session, the kids walk on each other. They're all responsible for their own tissue health. And that's part of this entire training experience that we have 10-year-olds standing on each other's quads and, and mashing each other out because they recognize that stiffness is a limitation to performance. And we can take that concept and say stiffness is a limitation to your life performance. Well, I, I think the notion that you're uh, talking about in Deskbound uh, has been picked up uh, in terms of retail, because we're now seeing stand-up desks really starting to proliferate. So uh, I think there's a, a move on some progressive companies to begin to incorporate stand-up desks, or at least make, making that approach available to their workers. And we have to. You know, um, I just was in Silicon Valley lecturing to 120 HR managers for big corporations. And I said, hey, how's it going? Are you spending more money or less money on healthcare and wellness? And they were like, oh, we are just dumping money down this tube and we haven't changed anything. You know, the, the number of sick days remains the same. The, you know, what's interesting now is that we really are on the nascent bubble of, of research looking at addressing the sedentary lifestyle. And some research is coming out that we see fewer lost user days, um, you know, that people are more productive. Uh, we use this little calculator with my wife, but it turns out that a 42-year-old woman who's about 135 pounds, if she stands at her workstation, she burns an additional 100,000 calories a year. Wow. And so you can imagine suddenly, even from an issue of addressing colds, that if I'm sitting and collapsed, I see poor diaphragm function, 
poor breathing function, which means that I'm not circulating the lymph around my thoracic spot, cavity, right? And I just, we just, it's, it's a simple biological mechanical system. And then when we put it into the right environment, it's remarkable how robust and resilient it is. This is really very fascinating for me. And um, because, you know, our work has all been, again, the mismatch between diet as it relates to human uh, health and disease resistance and physiology in general. And now, you know, we're looking at mechanics and activity and you've done an amazing work uh, in your three books in, in bringing this uh, information to light. So I want to congratulate you and I want to thank you for sharing this information with us. So um, I, ho I hope uh, you continue to do the work because we sure need to hear your message. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, one of the nice things about this piece, this message piece, it's, it's the same thing we're seeing in performance nutrition, which is eat food. Turns out food, real food, food that rots, food that isn't white, right? Food that your grandparents would recognize. That's the foundation for humans and human function. And now we're sophisticated enough to say, hey, you have a damaged MTFR gene. So we need to upregulate your folate. So we can turn the little wrenches a little bit, right? I don't I don't process, I don't make enough vitamin D. I have to take a little vitamin D up here in, in Northern California. All right, I can tweak the, the, the knobs on that. But what we know is that the bottom line is, are you eating food? Did you have six to eight fistfuls of vegetables today, Kelly? Yes or no? Because if you didn't, Chances are you need some magnesium or you could eat six to eight fists of vegetables, right? When we look at the movement and this application of fitness as turning those little wrenches, but the bottom line is the, the equivalent of eating real foods again, right? Just manage, you know, getting off the, the junk and expressing how humans are supposed to work is the same thing as programming in more movement. So what we're seeing is that everyone's working together and we're all going to end up at the same place. I think you, you, you touched upon something that is actually really valid. And that is, while, you know, we in medicine do uh, like to utilize the approaches to what is called personalized medicine, looking at... Uh, the genetic uh, single nucleotide polymorphism uniqueness of every individual, you mentioned MTHFR, how we're subtly different in terms of our genetics and how subtle things like morpholate or vitamin D or what have you might be important for each individual based upon their genetic evaluation. And yet the broad strokes of simply getting your butt out, off the, uh, out of the chair and being more active eating a diet that has higher levels of fiber, lower carbohydrates, welcoming fat back to the table. These are the simple broad strokes that I can feel comfortable in terms of making generalized statements to people about, write books about and lecture about. Again, you know, there are, everybody has their, their nuances that are required, their idiosyncrasies, but in general, we've got to get moving. We've got to get eating right. I mean, I think that's the simplest way that I can put it. I completely agree, and I, I think what people don't realize is that they don't feel as good as they could feel. They don't live the life physically, the self, you know, the physical self-actualization that they're entitled to with very little input. I think yes, the, the human being, you know, we don't. We always are trying to point positive and say, you know, eat this way, not because you may or may not get cancer or diabetes or all these other sequelae, right? Instead, eat this way and guess what? You sleep better, you feel better, you look better naked. I mean, all aspects of your, of your personal being, the clarity, the whole thing, energy goes up. And that's what we're trying to point is saying that, hey, look, you don't have to even exist. And you might feel great, but you might even be able to feel better. And that's, that's an important piece of this. Wow. 
Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, really very, very intriguing, very interesting, and most of all, very empowering, uh, not just for me, but for our viewers as well. So I'm hoping we get to a chance to run into each other soon. Please, please. And, and thank you so much for all the work you do. I mean, really, you know, it's, it's so miraculous to look around and see really progressive you know, people who come from a formal science background and yet really are in the trenches helping people solve the day-to-day -day problems of, of downregulation or, or misfunction of the human. And I really appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Well, that was really uh, fascinating information, really uh, eye-opening information, especially when you remember uh, the, the, what Dr. Starrett talked about in terms of how much time uh, people are typically spent uh, sitting down. I'm even concerned about the fact that I'm, I'm sitting down to do this interview. Interesting information. Again, here is the book. Uh, it is called Desk Bound, Standing Up to a Sitting World. It's an excellent read, wonderful uh, images in terms of what you can do uh, to change our very, very, your very, very sedentary lifestyle and uh, pave the way for better health. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter.